Well, good morning. Good morning, Machias family. Ah, thank you for that. I really do. This is my family. You know, you are an extension of, of, my, of my blood family. Um, and I, I was going to say, it's good to see your faces this morning. And I guess I mean that literally because I'm used to looking at the back of your heads. Uh, so... Uh, I'll admit I'm more comfortable behind the sound booth, uh, but thank you, Bill, for taking up his, his old mantle today, and uh, Paul couldn't be here either this morning, so thank you for that. And I appreciate the elders and Carl for giving me this opportunity to, uh, to bring the, the Word of God to you today. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to continue through the end of the chapter, chapter here, verses 24 through 37. And over the past few weeks or so in studying Mark, We'll remember many accounts in, in the life and the ministry, work of Jesus, that really for all intents and purposes are, are famous, even, even outside of Christianity. So we looked at Jesus storms the, or calms the storm of the Sea of Galilee. He cast out demons into a herd of pigs. He fed the 5,000. And he walked on water. But the thing I love most about studying the book of the Bible, especially cover to cover, verse by verse as we do, are the in-between stories. So those accounts where Jesus is quietly working one-on-one with someone that desperately needs him. Stories where Jesus works in a, in a still place without crowds surrounding him to speak to an individual in a way that, that really, I think, penetrates their soul. I love reading about Jesus caring for one of his sheep in a way that may surprise us not only for, for what he says, but how he says it and who exactly he's talking to. Charles Spurgeon said this about our passage. Let us go even to the borders of Tyre and Sidon, though the land is under a curse. For even there we shall discover some elect one, ordained to be a jewel for the Redeemer's crown. Our Heavenly Father has children everywhere. That's where we're going to be going today. We're going to see Jesus travel away from Israel. We're going to see him find someone who's not of his people. And then he's going to come back to continue his work near his homeland. So just in these few verses of Mark today, we'll get to see some of the following. We'll look at Jesus claiming authority over his creation, as we always do. We'll look at the faith that's been given to those that come to him. We'll see, yet again, Jesus' humanity and his compassion. We'll see his fulfilling of prophecy, and we'll see how that's that's a promise for us. So let's read Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. 
And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So let's take a look at at where Jesus is headed today. We'll go back to to the beginning in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, I'm I'm personally glad that Carl showed uh, a map for you last week so that we can take a test this week. Yeah. All right. So we're going to play a little game. It's called Where in the World is Jesus? Uh, you'll have multiple choice answer sheets in the back of your seat, so please fill those out. No. Uh, but let's, let's really take a look at, at a map of Israel. We're going to see Egypt to the south there, the, the southern border. Um, we're going to see Jerusalem there in Judea. And then getting up to the top there, that, that first yellow arrow is the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus stopped for us last week. That's where the Pharisees had come up to challenge Jesus. And today we're going we're gonna to watch him walk north. The north will be less familiar, but this is the Roman province of Syria and the region of Phoenicia. Now, Phoenicia is, is modern-day Lebanon if we were looking at a modern map. Um, but that contains the cities of, of Tyre and Sidon, and those are still on the map today. You could, you could go visit them. But based on what we know today, Jesus walked from the Sea of Galilee up to this region. We don't know exactly where he landed, um, but 35, 50 miles, somewhere in there, just to his first stop. What we need to see, though, is that Jesus has gone outside of Israel. He's gone away from the Jewish people. Why? Well, we're told that he's seeking solitude. Verse 24 continues, And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen Jesus withdrawing from the crowds. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw him feed the 5,000 in chapter 6. We mentioned that earlier. But over and over again, Jesus looks for rest, but his ministry is right in front of him. It, It follows him wherever he goes. And even though Jesus has gone away from his normal audience, this isn't the first time that people from this region have heard his teaching either. Let's look at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew from the disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and that was, so if you remember from the map, that was in the south, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So word of Jesus had spread well beyond the immediate region that he normally traveled through. Over and over again, we see the power of Jesus' work, and people couldn't get enough. They were coming from all over to hear him and to get healed. Verse 25, or uh, Mark chapter 7, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came to him, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. So imagine this woman's predicament. Much like other stories we've seen of of lame and crippled and blind and otherwise outcast and immobile people. This woman's daughter was ill and she knew Jesus could help. She was helpless. Her Her daughter didn't need a doctor. She needed a savior. 
and is common really in, in most accounts in Mark. We're given no indication of, of really how this came about or how this woman even knows that this is a demon and, and not mental illness, illness. But other accounts in Scripture, and we've read these in the book of Mark, they do give us an indication that demon possession is accompanied by abnormal strength, wild behavior, and an inability to physically control the one who is possessed. But being physically afflicted, this woman probably couldn't even travel far from home. Simply due to caring for her daughter, she likely spends night and day trying to keep her daughter from harming herself and probably others as well. We'll see in a few weeks as we study in Mark 9 how another child infected with an unclean spirit throw, is thrown into fire and water. And why? Just because he can. So imagine this mother's joy when she hears that the miracle-performing Jesus of Nazareth has arrived in her town. Verse 26 says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So I don't think it's difficult to understand why this woman wants Jesus to heal her daughter, of course. But is it okay for us to, to stop here for a second as readers and ask, how did this child come to be possessed? It's not a question we often ask. I don't think we often even think twice about it. We normally encounter adults possessed by demons. But maybe that's because, you know, we're, we're, again, we're seeing this often in, um, in the Gospels, and we just don't think twice about it. But I think that's partly why Mark is telling us her origins. There's something we need to understand about this region. Remember, Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is part of the region of Phoenicia and, and greater Syria. Hence, by saying she's a Syrophoenician woman, he's saying she's a local woman. Well, why does that even matter? Well, Matthew tells us in chapter 15, that's the same account in Matthew, that she was a Canaanite woman. So she's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, a Canaanite woman. Is this a conflict of information? No, of course not. No, it's, it's supporting evidence, giving us a clue as to her background and her family's historical religious practices. This was historically Canaanite country. And if you remember anything about the Canaanites in the Old Testament, it was far from good. No, they worshiped false gods. And I guess that's putting it mildly because they did so to the extreme of sacrificing their own children. Now, there's also a prominent temple in the area, and this, in fact, this exact region, uh, to the Phoenician god named Eshman. I was going to show you a picture, but I, don't, I wasn't sure if that'd be appropriate. Then we'd have to quickly flip to a picture of kittens or something, but um, yeah. But you, you can actually go see the temple if you're ever in the area. The, there's still a temple there today, and there's little idols there. Um, so, so this goes back thousands of years. But what's interesting here is Eshman, Eshman, this local deity, he was their god of healing. Now, you and I can probably see the immediate irony in this, that Eshman, the, the local god of healing, the principal deity in the area, is not the one being sought after in this story. Now, we've seen a couple of clues that, that may explain um, why is a seemingly innocent child being afflicted. We know that, that child sacrifice was a custom in, the, in ancient Phoenicia. This child's affliction was incapable of cure by the very God that this, that this family historically worshipped. 
But beyond this, let's look at what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. And not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Worship of any other God besides Elohim, our triune God, our triune Lord, is worship of the very unclean spirits that could inhabit people who sacrificed to them in the very temple for which they were asking for healing. Now, I really don't mean to imply that this woman asked for this demon for her daughter. No, 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 of course not. But what it does mean is that without the work of God, this region was festering with and open to all kinds of evil. That's why Spurgeon called this a cursed land, if you remember that from the beginning. So what do we want to be clear about here? Is that this isn't normal? No, of course not. In fact, this type of event actually could have been heightened in the time of Jesus' day and uh, the time of his ministry. But please know, as, as we read through difficult accounts in Scripture... It's okay not to know all the answers as to why. It's okay not to know all the background, why everybody struggles, because we're confronted with our Savior. So as Carl's mentioned several times throughout this, this series in the book of Mark, there are, spiritual for, are there spiritual forces at work today? Yes, there are. Should we, as believers, be worried that this could happen to us? No, we should not. That doesn't mean that, that we can't be challenged and oppressed, but we, we cannot be possessed. If you have acknowledged Jesus as your Lord, you have the Holy Spirit, and he takes residence in your life and in your heart. There's, really, there's, there's so much more that we could unpack here in the practicality of how the spiritual world operates around us. But today, what I want us to see out of this passage is the beauty in this woman's interaction with Jesus. There's a juxtaposition of spiritual forces at work here. The irony that we see in a cultural God of healing being unable to heal is not lost on this woman. She has heard of Jesus, of course. In fact, we read in, in Matthew chapter 15 that she calls him son of David. That's a distinctly Jewish term. Maybe she's been to hear Jesus speak before, but maybe she's believing more than just rumors. She speaks as though she knows his authority. Why? Because she's probably even heard local stories handed down about a miracle that the Jewish prophet Elijah had performed in this very region 800 years before. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm not going to put all the verses up here. So please turn to 1 Kings if you're able, or I want you to listen along as we hear the work of God through Elijah. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath. Which if we stop there for a second, that's really right between Tyre and Sidon. Uh, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked 
only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Continuing through verse 17 here. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child and three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What a story. And I don't think, I don't think this story would have been kept quiet in the area. Imagine you as a mom seeing your son raised from the dead or seeing your child healed. Could you keep that to yourself? No. No, I don't think this story was kept quiet at all. Just like the man who Jesus released of a legion of demons a few chapters ago. I guarantee this woman of the raised son told everyone that she could. And this type of story, it sticks around, even for 800 years. This Gentile, this Syrophoenician, this Canaanite woman, she knows the true and the living God. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar knew and worshipped God after the fiery furnace, it's hard to deny true authority when you're when you're faced with it, you're confronted with it, and you've been living amongst false gods your entire life. She knows the source of life. And so she becomes, she comes fully expectant of the same mercy that the Lord has shown in her region before. But she doesn't get the response that she's looking for. Verse 27 says, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Huh. My Jesus said that? 
This is what we call one of the hard sayings of Jesus. You know, some hard sayings are, are hard because we don't really immediately understand them. And other hard sayings, we don't like them. This, this maybe is, is a little bit of both. Now, my personal gut reaction here, if, if someone was to bring this to me and, and open and said, Jesus says this, what do you have to say about that? My gut reaction is to, to defend Jesus. But between you and me, he probably doesn't need my defense. Was Jesus being offensive? Yes. Yes, he was. We can't deny that. But while Jesus doesn't need our defense of what we don't like, let's try to at least understand what it is he's trying to say. Who are the children? What are they eating? And who are the dogs? Well, Paul gives us a clue in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul understood this is just a, a matter of fact. The children of the Jews, the food is salvation or the gospel or, or the blessings that have been promised to Israel but not offered outside of Israel yet. And the dogs are the Gentiles, or the Greeks here, as we're told, or the, the non-Jews. But here's what's really interesting. It's like Jesus is, is lobbing her a softball in the, in the middle of an insult. The word dog here is used, it's, it's not used the same throughout all of Scripture. There's two primary uses of the word dog in Scripture. And the first, if we look at this, um, it means capable of violence and filthy habits. It's, it's an unclean canine. I promised I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek to you. Um, actually, we were sitting at the dinner table the other day, and we were talking about the kids having to, to look up words in a dictionary, which... You know, they, they get frustrated at. Uh, but I said, you know, I was just in a Greek dictionary. I have to look up words too. And, and Mila, my daughter, looked at me and said, but if it's in Greek, how could you read it? Well, fortunately, the definitions are in English for all of us. So uh, we have that going for us. But, but here's an example. Let's look at Philippians uh, verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These aren't your house pets, right? These are wild animals. But the other use of the word dogs in Scripture, the one that Jesus uses here, it means a small house pet. So when Jesus is talking about throwing bread to the dogs, he's not creating a scenario of really throwing a meal out into the woods. No, he has a picture that's much closer to home. And this makes all the difference. And this woman understands his analogy. Let's look at her response. Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Notice what this woman doesn't do. She's not arguing with Jesus. She's not trying to twist his words. Instead, she falls at his feet and acknowledges her place as a Gentile in comparison to Israel at the time. In accepting this comparison, the woman knew that she had nothing which earned her the request that she was bringing to Jesus. Gentiles had no right, at least not yet, to the blessings God had promised to Israel. In contrast, the Jewish leaders of the time, they thought too highly of themselves, and they despised Jesus for what he freely offered to those he encountered, especially to those that were broken and unclean. They acted as wannabe demigods, 
who could just make up the rules as they went along in their supposedly religious life. But the faith of this woman, with no doubt a faith granted to her by God, had her at the feet of her creator, submissive to his words, submissive to the word, the logos of God, the same word that created her, the same word that had been throughout the surrounding regions performing signs and miracles, the same word that now spoke to her. She did not dare disagree with the word. She didn't say, Lord, I know you mean well, but that's really offensive. No. She didn't say, you know, I don't care who you are. Just give me what I want. I have earned what you have. No, she didn't say, I don't know who you think you are, but you're in my land and you're a guest here. No. What did she say? She said, yes, Lord. In this she's saying, I'm yours and you are mine. I am part of your household, even as a pet under the table. I accept everything you have and everything you say, for you are master over this house in which I reside. Whatever you can spare me, even the crumbs, it is enough for me. Jesus, you are enough. She saw Jesus for who he was, as her savior. This, this is faith. And he said to her, verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Did Jesus accept her, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, a Canaanite woman? Did he accept her for, for her wit, for her charm, for her understanding of his nuance of the Greek? No. Did he accept her for her good works? Did he accept her for her religious zeal? No. He accepted her in spite of all of this. He accepted her for her faith. It's always faith. It's the one reason he accepts anyone. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul's utter to the Ephesians here, it could not more accurately represent this Syrophoenician woman. Her people. Or us. This is us. We live in a dead and idolatrous world. We are dead in our trespasses. But God, out of the sweetest scripture, is the sweetest phrase. But God, his mercy, his grace, is mercy for us. The dogs. 
There is nothing we can ask of him that we deserve or have earned. Why? Because we're faced with an impossible position. We are wretched sinners in the face of a holy God. But Jesus. What we see happening next, it pulls back the curtain yet again on who Jesus is. Every miracle, every single miracle that we read has its own nuance and its own purpose. But they all point back to who Jesus is. If we could have one point in every sermon every week throughout the book of Mark, it would be, look at Jesus. Look who he is. We've seen that he's Lord over spiritual forces, but he didn't come just to heal. No. It's through this work that Mark is showing us that Jesus is the promised one, the one that came to save us all. So let's continue in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, I won't bring up the map here again, but if you can remember, so Jesus has gone north to, into Phoenicia. Um, he's traveled further north now into Sidon, and now he's coming all the way back down. And the Decapolis is a region that touches back again the Sea of Galilee. So he's come in total 150-ish miles. It's a long journey. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Now, why would Jesus take him aside privately? Most scholars agree that that Jesus was ensuring that he didn't draw too much of attention to himself, um, especially to to delay uh, the the crucifixion and the trial that that, uh, was coming up until Jesus himself was ready. But I think there's an additional reason. It's his compassion for this man. He may have just wanted to isolate a conversation with him. He may very well have been exhausted as well. But I think there's there's a very real distinct character in Jesus where he wants to look eye to eye with someone and talk with them. Have you ever had someone come to you in such agony that the only loving response was, let's get away from here. Let's go talk. Could Jesus have just waved his hand? Yeah, he just healed this other woman's daughter from we don't know what distance. He's done this before. We've seen it. But he wanted this man to know that he was personally cared for. Jesus proceeds to touch him. He touches the man's ears. Remember, he's deaf. He spits on his tongue. He spits on his finger and touches his tongue. Right? Well, remember, he didn't spit on his finger and stick it into the guy's ear. The, I think the order is important there. Um, but in doing this, he acknowledged ailments to a man that couldn't hear him and couldn't speak himself. His touch was a communication to this man. Jesus is taking his time to show both his human and his divine compassion for the creation that he made in his own image. Now, there's a whole other sermon there, uh, but really, if we could cut to the chase of that, it would be, do you take time to spend with others in a way that is meaningful to them and in a way that shows the Father's love? Now, if I could actually just hit pause here for a second and say, I'll make a shameless plug for gospel community groups. Why not? Uh, yes. Yeah, Carl didn't ask me to do this, but we're going to do it anyways. So this is why we get together throughout the week. Right? We, we rejoice together. We cry together. We pray together. We ask for healing together. We ask for steadfastness together. We sit together. And at times, 
we lay hands on each other in prayer. And all of this is empowered by the same spirit that emboldened Jesus' ministry. Now, however imperfectly we can do it, we intend to, to care for each other throughout the week. So if you're not in a gospel community group, might I be so bold as to say, you're missing out. There. You're, that, that was free. You're welcome. We'll hit play again. All right. Verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to them, said to him, Ephphathah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now, Jesus speaks Aramaic here, but Mark gets to translate it for us because he has a Greek-speaking audience. When Jesus says Ephphathah, it's not a magic word or, or an incantation. There's actually a, a whole study we could do here uh, where this word ties into some, some practices, and maybe Jesus is bringing this up for the benefit of the people around him. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the hands of Jesus because Jesus is uttering a command here. He's showing once again that he is in 100% full control of his creation. And while there's an, there's an obvious miracle here, and, and at this point in Mark, we're probably not surprised. Yep, here's just another guy being healed, you know, par for the course. It's Jesus doing his thing. Um, his disciples actually probably weren't surprised either. But there's a subtle miracle here. There's a subtle miracle that is beyond anything we've seen. The man speaks plainly. Yes, his, his hearing has been restored. So not only can he, can he hear those around him, but he can hear himself. That's a crucial component of speaking. We're told that his tongue was released. Maybe he had a physical issue with his tongue. We don't know. Um, but again, it, it, I don't think it matters in the hands of Jesus. But I love looking at the uniqueness in each of Jesus' miracles. Here, the subtlety is that the man spoke plainly. He was given not just the ability to speak, but the language and the articulation to do so plainly. This shows us that Jesus is not only aware of every single detail, but he finds importance in healing perfectly. Not partly. Verse 36 says, And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Again, subtlety in Scripture. Not only do these people completely ignore Jesus' request to keep this healing quiet. And we've seen this over and over and over again. But the way in which they proclaim the healing has very specific meaning. And in fact, this would likely get back to the religious leaders of the day, and they would know exactly what it meant. The meaning of their claim, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It probably was lost on those that spoke it. But it points right back to the words prophesied by Isaiah, chapter 35, starting in verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In one single moment, Jesus is known not only as the one who can heal the body, but one, 
the one who was promised to come save our souls. He is our Messiah. This is simultaneously both prophecy being fulfilled by Jesus and revealed by those who likely had no idea what they were saying. Jesus has come to heal not just the deaf, but to open the outcast's ears to the gospel. He came to loose the tongue of the mute, but for the purpose of sharing the good news. Ironically, so many people would and do completely miss, ignore, and outright reject our Messiah. So Carl's mentioned this several times, but does all this mean that if we just have enough faith, if we have enough faith and fall before Jesus, that we'll be healed physically now? In short, yes and no. How's that for clarity? I say yes only because we have to recognize that God can and does heal. He can heal physically. I'm sure we can all think of so many times where this has happened. And he tells us, he tells us to come to him with all of our needs. Let's look at James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is, entering, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is, any, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James says, come to God. Come to him in prayer. But James says, next is, is often misused in certain circles. James gets right to the point of faith. But it's not healing, even though it's talked about here. The point is forgiveness. If we kept reading beyond this passage in James, he continues to, to interchange the topics of sin and healing, confession, and answered prayer. The emphasis is our perpetual and collective supplication to our Creator. We come together, we come constantly, we come fervently, we come humbly in prayer. All the while, knowing our God is capable of both healing physically and washing away our sins. At the onset of this, of this book of Mark, as we started to study it, Mark recounts what Jesus' ministry was actually all about. Let's look at Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to him, said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus' primary ministry was preaching and bringing himself to the masses. The healings were just a confirmation of his authority, a confirmation of who he was. Now the question for you is, do you have the same faith in Jesus as your Savior, with or without a yes to your prayers? I want to take just a second to look at two modern and really what are very public lives of, of men of God that were marked by faith, that are marked by faith, but also by great illness. These two men fervently appealed to their creator for healing, and with aid of, of the best doctors, they ended in different outcomes. 
The first, and you may recognize these names, the first is Matt Chandler. He's the lead pastor at the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. He has reached countless people with the gospel through his teaching, through preaching, through authoring books, and his leadership in, in church planting. Not to mention, really, it's just his personal interactions, which I love listening to Chandler's stories of his personal interactions with people. But in 2009, he collapsed on Thanksgiving Day from what would be discovered as a brain tumor. I'll make the story short, but he was given two to three years to live. The number of people praying for Matt was literally countless. Through the battle of treatment, though, with the Lord's hand of grace, he's now living all these years later. He's now living a, a life full of ministry to God's kingdom. This was the outcome that, that everyone had prayed for. Praise God for answered prayers. I mean, just like the Syrophoenician woman. But the next person I want to tell you about, and I hope you recognize this name or will become familiar with it, is Dr. Nabil Qureshi. Dr. Qureshi grew up as a Muslim. He'd been taught not only to, to read the Quran in Arabic, but after memorizing much of it, he was also trained in Islamic apologetics in order to, to defend the religion to anybody he encountered. But through the grace of God, he became a Christian during his college years. After seeking to disprove Christianity, what he found was the opposite. In 2014, he published his first book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He became a powerful apologist. And like Chandler, he has reached countless people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did this in a way that, that most couldn't simply because of, his, because of his background. And certainly he reached a unique crowd because of his background. Yet in 2016, Dr. Qureshi discovered he had advanced stomach cancer. Again, countless people were praying for him as he was seeing the best doctors. In 2017, just one year later, Dr. Qureshi said this while lying in his hospital bed. You can, in fact, watch this video today. Not the best news. The doctors have pretty much given up on treating me. They think my body is in its final stages of life. I could really use your prayers. If we want the Lord to come through and do a miracle, it needs to happen in the next few days. And then as he prayed out loud, earnestly for a miracle, he closed with this. God is more than able, and I'm going to rest in that as best I can. Lord, we know you are able. Please heal. Please come through. But if it shouldn't be your will, your sovereign will at the end of the day, then I trust in you, and I love you anyway. Praise you, Lord. Just eight days later, Dr. Nabil Qureshi went to be with the Lord. He was just 34 years old and survived by his wife and daughter. On the surface, of course, these sound like very different outcomes to painful journeys of, of sickness and suffering. But why? Was their faith any different from each other? Were their expectations of healing any different? Did their measure of faith dictate their outcome? If you could bear with me a bold claim, the end of their journey was the same. 
Both of these men reach tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people through their ministries. It has been used by God to shape so many hearts and in the minds towards the kingdom of God. Yet, they both came to the end of their road of cancer with healing. But wait, didn't Dr. Koreshi pass away? Yes, yes, of course he did. But he was healed. He was made whole again forever, forever with our Savior. Matt Chandler was also healed, of course, and he's able to continue his pastoral work even today with incredible fire, but he'll get sick again. Hopefully not with cancer, but as you and I all will, we'll get sick on and off again throughout our lives. But contrary to every false teacher of yesterday, today, and tomorrow that tells you if God isn't healing you or making you wealthy, then you don't have enough faith. No. No, that is an utter lie. What you must understand is this. Although we have no guarantee of physical healing today, we do have a God that desires to hear our earnest petitions. Although we have no guarantee of physical healing today, we do have a Lord that knows what it means to walk amongst us and has compassion for his creation that he made in his image. Although we have no guarantee of physical healing today, we do have a Savior that promises to redeem those that believe in him, wash away our sins, and promise us renewed bodies in eternity. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, because of his work, because he is enough, Jesus desires you to come to him urgently, fervently, consistently. Come to him with your every need, including your physical suffering. The call from Jesus is always the same. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He may say yes to your cries of physical healing. We know he's fully capable. He is the great physician. If you have the same faith as the Syrophoenician woman, then he is your great physician. But he may also say, not yet. I'm still working in you through your pain. Again, if you have the same faith as the Syrophoenician woman, then he is your great physician. He may also say, I'll see you soon. I want you home with me. Especially in this. If you have the same faith as the Syrophoenician woman, he is your great physician. We are promised that the, that the faith God has gifted us by his grace grants us access to a healer that will take away our pain, either now and forever, or at least in the forever with him. But the greatest healing of all, the healing of our soul, it's not a maybe later answer. The answer to the question when we ask for forgiveness of our sins is always yes. Sin is the greatest and most persistent ailment in our bodies. Has Jesus unstopped your ears to hear the gospel? Has he healed your tongue to be unashamed of proclaiming his name? Jesus has promised that if we come to him and we put our faith in him, he is faithful to forgive us. Our great physician is primarily a healer of the soul. 
Jesus' work on the cross has made it possible to have a relationship with him. Come to him. Fall on your knees to him. If you haven't already, ask for a relationship with him. Will he he heal your physical ailments? I don't know. Will he wash away your sins? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus is always enough. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We fall before you humbly now, singing your praises. God, as we pour through your word, we pray that this not be fleeting from our ears and our hearts, Lord, but we pray that that this be pounding on us every day this week, that if we fall before you, ask for forgiveness, that you are faithful to forgive, and that, Lord, you are capable of healing. Lord, we thank you for the relationship that you offer to us through your Son, the relationship that makes you available, that we can come to you anytime with anything, and you hear our earnest pleas. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. We praise you. In your Son's name, amen.